What happens if you were sitting at a table with nine of your friends and then five more people rolled up? Is that a public speaking engagement now? Should you be scared in that situation or is that not enough people, right? Hey, it's Jason Flatland here. You're listening to The Jason Flatland Show, where I'll be sharing everything from sales and webinar tips to improving productivity and reaching your infinite potential. I had a client come to me one day, and she said, I'm really scared to speak on stage, Jason. I'm afraid of public speaking. And I didn't know why. I found out later why. The why wasn't important. People think somehow if you get insight into your problem that you can fix your problem. And that's true, but only very rarely. Very rarely true that if I know what causes the problem, I can fix the problem. Insight is one of the weakest ways in order to fix a problem that I've ever seen. It's like, well, if you just know how to eat better, then you'll be healthier. Doesn't work that way, right? Doesn't work that way. We all know we should eat healthier. We all know vegetables are healthier than chocolate cake, right? Yet chocolate cake outsells vegetables, you know? So insight into the problem, the solution. So I didn't care about the insight. Here's the question I asked her. I said, how do you know when to be scared? She never heard that question before. So again, it goes back to the strategic principle we talked about earlier. What are they not hearing that they need to hear to make a different decision? How do you know when to be scared? What happens if you were sitting at a table with nine of your friends and then five more people rolled up? Is that a public speaking engagement now? Should you be scared in that situation or is that not enough people, right? This is gold if you really understand where I'm going with this. It's very tricky, right? Here's one of the benefits of doing this. If for no other reason is it puts thought into an automated process. Right now somebody feels helpless, learned helplessness. In this condition, I'm supposed to be afraid. And they habituate that. And then they never think about it again. This is a presupposition. How do you know when to presupposes you have control or power over it? And that's helpful. Otherwise, the alternative is I'm powerless. And that's weak. That doesn't help. So I said, how do you know when to be scared? And I was joking with her. You got to use humor in these delicate situations sometimes. So I said, you know, what if a bunch of people just rolled up on you? Didn't you start getting scared? When does a private conversation with friends turning into a public speaking opportunity? And this is what she told me. And this was so beautiful and so wonderful. She says, when I can no longer see everybody's face, then I get scared. I would be scared out of my mind too. In my head, I was like, if that was the criteria of public speaking, I could never speak in public again. It's too much. It's too much. And then what we realized was that was a cue for her to feel safe reading people's faces. And then we said, I helped her consider that maybe there's other ways to feel safe. And that was the end of it, one conversation. Two months later, she sends me a picture. She's in front of an audience about this size, and she's speaking on stage, looking like a million dollars, right? Isn't that credible? Because I asked her, how do you know when to be afraid? She never thought about it like that before. Now, later on, I discovered she came from a different part of the world. Her parents brought her over when she was 10. They didn't know English. They didn't teach her English. They shoved her in a public school system. She didn't know the language, and other kids would throw rocks at her because she couldn't speak the language, right? No wonder she was afraid. No wonder she had trouble with it. But I didn't need to know that in order to help her. I gave her power back over an otherwise powerless situation. I had a friend of mine, too. We were talking on the phone one day, and he says, my son has a problem biting his nails. I said, cool, put him on the phone, right? He says, oh, okay. And I asked the kid, I said, which nail do you know to bite first? How do you know which nail to bite first? Isn't that silly? And instantly, I got rapport with him. Nobody had ever asked him that question. They always looked at it as a deficiency. And I looked at it with curiosity and intrigue. How do you know which one? And we started to run through it. And then the logic is this. Well, if you let the nail grow out longer, you have more to bite. And he's like, I can do that. He's like, this is awesome, man. I get to bite more, not less. Lean into the tendency. Don't bite it. And then when he realizes he can withstand it and doesn't have to bite it, it's no longer a compulsion. The opportunity to change occurs. So how do you know when? How do you know that? One of my favorite questions. And so when somebody would say, my audience doesn't buy from me, how do you know that? Have you ever asked them to buy from you? 
Usually it's not. My audience won't pay that much. Let's find out. I never limit my price based on the pocketbook of my audience. I never limit my price based on what I think my audience can pay. Isn't that crazy? Because then I limit my ability to create value. The way we go about it is how can I provide the most value possible? And then we map it out and we say, well, that costs about $2 million. So that ain't going to work. Now how do we make it more economical? Other people are saying, how can we do it as cheap as possible and then add in value? Don't work that way. It's not as effective. We say, OK, this is way too expensive. How do we make it more economical? So we start at the top and then make concessions. Most people start at the bottom and then try to add things to it. So that's an inefficient position from a strategic application. But what we learned from the lesson of the first launch of the ASM is, and even before that, I could go to audiences that otherwise wouldn't buy and create situations where it was safe for them to find out if they could buy. As long as we could make it safe, we could do just about anything, which is not an entrepreneurial perspective. The stereotypical position of an entrepreneur is what? Risk taker, right? It's like, go big or go home. It's like, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. An entrepreneur is somebody who takes chances. An entrepreneur is often reckless, right? And we have plenty of examples to prove the rule, right? I don't know if y'all seen what Elon Musk is doing lately, but I'm confused. And he's a stereotypical type of entrepreneur. And those are the superheroes, those who we see, those who are coveted in society. But I don't want to take risks. I want to take the least amount of risk possible. I want to take risks that if we lose, there's little upside. If we gain, there's big upside. And so this is how we work in these market conditions. As long as it's safe, we'll try anything. When you were a child, as long as it was safe, you were willing to try anything. You would get on a bike and fall down and get back up and not even think to yourself, well, what will people think if I fall off the bike? That's something you learn later to worry about. Hey, Jason Flyland here. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful at all, please leave me a review. And thanks again and stay tuned for future episodes.